Heavenly Father, God, I do just thank you for this day, and Lord, I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for all that are here today. God, I thank you for all the kids that are here today, and I just ask, Lord, that you would be a blessing to them this morning. Lord, I pray that you would uh, uh, be with my wife and the others that are back teaching. God, I pray that you'd give them wisdom to know how to present the, the wonderful, uh, simple truths of who you are. God, I pray that you'd be with us this morning as I look at your word. God, I ask that you would help us to consider it in light of all that you are. And help us, Lord, to find the truth in these scriptures. In your name I pray, amen. Well, I'm going to start today with uh, a picture. It's my backyard. Um, I built a fence. I'm kind of proud of myself. I know, um, my, my brother-in-law, he's probably looking at it going, seeing all the things wrong with it. Uh, I'm proud of it because I used a bunch of used pieces Right? So I didn't buy a bunch of new pieces of fence. It didn't cost me hardly anything. I used some old pieces of fence and old posts and everything else. And I was sticking up this fence. And uh, we had it up on one side. And, and I, I was kind of proud about the, the little section I had here right in the middle. You can't quite see it. But it, it, tall fence, the short fence, I made a little thing going down steps to it. I was like, yeah, that looks pretty good. And we planted some nice little flowers around the edge. And I was really excited about it. Um, I know you guys are like, who cares? The fence. Uh, <clears throat> but... As I was finishing this fence, one of the things that I did is I made sure that all the little gaps were covered, right? So the gate closed completely, and there was a spot over on the other side, and I put a little section of fence there just to make sure there wasn't a, a gap to get out. And around this other side, there's a little spot that was open, and made sure that looked good. And, but it wasn't just for the, the view of the fence. That's part of why we were doing this. We thought it would look better in the backyard to have a nice little fence back here. Uh, but it was also because of something else. That's, that's my wife's dog. She loves, that's Zeus, the pug. Um, she loves that dog. And that dog loves her. And I can imagine, when I think about this dog, that's, that's why I was making sure all those little, I'm going to leave that up there for a minute so you have to look at that ugly dog. Um, you know, before I built the fence, I'd put the dog on a chain, right? We had one of those nice long leashes hook him up on the chain, and I would let him out the back door, and he could get so far but no further. Um, I can imagine that the dog, uh, initially, as I didn't have to put him on this chain, he probably felt like, man, this is awesome. Just get to go out here without the burden of the chain around his neck. I don't know. The dog probably, I mean, look at him. He probably doesn't have very many thoughts going through his head except bacon, okay, and, you know. But I, I imagined when I let the dog out the first time and I had the fence closed in, I could just let him out, and he could roam freely in the backyard. He was pretty excited, but you know what he did? He went right to the edge of the fence and peeked through, right? Now, I know that part of the reason was because his favorite place to do his business was just on the other edge of my property, just right outside of my property, which I thought was hilarious. Uh, uh, he, he liked to go just outside of my property to my neighbor's yard and take care of business, uh, my neighbor's pastor, Drew, from Second Church of Christ, and so I always made sure he wasn't out there when my dog was out there doing his, doing his deeds in his yard. But my dog, that's where he was. He wanted to sneak over there and just get right on the other side of where that's at. And so I imagine, I, then, I, then I let my dog out, and I imagine him thinking, you know, well, instead of just being happy that I, I don't have this chain around my neck anymore, I wonder if he thought to himself, this is kind of prohibitive. This is kind of restrictive for my life. Right? Now, think about it for a moment. I had all kinds of other reasons for the, f the fence that were beyond the dog's comprehension. 
right? He doesn't know anything about aesthetic look of a backyard. We're thinking about selling, so we're trying to improve some things. And he doesn't know any of that. I couldn't explain that to the dog. He would never understand it. I mean, when I talk to him, that's pretty much the same look he gives no matter what I'm saying. I don't think there's very many deep thoughts in that little pug brain. But some of it had nothing to do with what the fence looked like because the fence, there's parts that, they weren't visible, but I made sure that they were closed up anyway so the dog couldn't get through. I wanted to keep the dog safe. The fence was not to keep the dog from something good. I put the fence up not to limit the dog's life or to make him feel more miserable. I put the fence up because, well, I don't really love the dog that much, but I do love my wife, and she loves the dog. And honestly, I wanted to keep the dog safe. I know that there's an alley less than 10 feet from the back edge of the, the, or from the, the yard. I know that people go flying down that alley all the time. They don't slow down. I know that we're only a house away from Vermilion Street. I also know that the dog's not too bright, and if we let him go for very long without watching him, he could wander off and would not be able to find his way back. I'm pretty sure that I've heard him say, quietly and discreetly, prone to wonder, Matt, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the charity I love. I mean, I, I think that that's his, for those of you that know old hymns, it was for you. Um, I, I think that I he has that tendency to wander off and just kind of go off into other places. So in some measure, I kept this fence and made sure it was secure for the dog's safety. Does that make sense? Now, you're probably thinking right now, what does this have to do with anything? I came here to hear the Bible today, Matt, not about your stupid pug. Um, well, let, let's put the pug example on the, 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 the fence for a second. Let, let's put it on the shelf for a second, not on the fence. Let's put it on the shelf for a second. We'll come back to this. So, so keep the, if I need to, I'll go back to this picture every once in a while just so you get that back in your head. Okay? Although you're probably trying to wipe it out of your brains, but I'm sorry, that's what he looks like. And this is a good day, by the way. Um, you might be thinking, what does this have to do? So let, let me jump back for just a second. I'm going to leave him up there while I'm talking about this. Last week we were talking about Acts chapter 15. In Acts chapter 15, you've got, uh, there's this church in Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem. It was the main founding church of all the other churches. Uh, there's, church, there's another big church up in Antioch. There's churches being started all over Israel, up into Turkey. There's churches uh, just being founded, started. People are coming to believe in Christ, and it, it's growing, this, this Christian belief system is growing. And there came up a dilemma. And I talked about this last week, so I don't want to go back too much into this. But basically, the dilemma was this. There were some people who were still thinking, yeah, it's Jesus, and I'm just going to call it this, Jesus plus, and you could fill in the blank with something else. There was this thought that it, to, to be saved, to be in, God's, in good standing with God, think about it that way, to be in good standing with God, where God is looking at you and he is well pleased with you, it had to be Jesus, sure, they, they were willing to accept that. Jesus, yes. Plus, and they had tacked on some other things. And so all these people came to uh, Paul, Barnabas, people that we've been talking about, Peter, uh, James was down there. James, the, the earthly, earthly brother of Christ, was there. And they, they, they gathered together to hear the different sides of this argument. Because on one hand, you've got Paul who's saying, no, it's Jesus, and that's it. It's not dependent on your performance any longer. It's just Jesus and his grace alone that we're saved. And the other side was saying, yeah, no, no, that's true. You have to have Jesus. But if you really 
want to be in God's good standing, you also have to do A, B, C, D, all these other things. And so the debate came up, and they debated. Peter shared some things that he had learned. Uh, Paul and Barnabas shared all sorts of aspects of the story. The, the debate continued on. People were listening, respecting, hearing the stories, and they finally came to a conclusion, and it was James, who was the elder of the church of Jerusalem, he was the one that finally, after hearing all the different arguments, and they had come to a consensus, he came up and he said, this is the truth. Because they had to get to the truth. What is salvation? And this is so important for all of us. Are you in a good standing with God because you've done all the right things? Are you a good standing with God because of Jesus and him alone? You're putting everything on him. You're just trusting that he's this gracious God who came to earth and died on the cross and took the penalty of all of your sin and gave his righteousness to you so that one day you could stand before God and he could say, you're, you're welcome in, and it has nothing to do with you. It's all Jesus. So they came to the conclusion, this is the truth. It was just Jesus, not Jesus plus. It's just him. So now they come back to this final statement. We're going to look at Acts chapter 15. I'm going to start with verse 19, and I've got them up here for you today. This is James speaking, and this is after the debate. He says this. He says, therefore, my judgment is this. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. So that's exactly what was happening. These new people who were coming in, they, had not, they didn't know anything about God beforehand. They were coming in, and people that had been you know, in some connection with God all along, they were saying, yeah, believe in Jesus, but you have to do this, and you have to look this way, and you have to act this way, and you have to dress this way, and you have to do all these other things. And, and, and so James, after listening to all this debate, this is his statement. He says, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. This is his final statement on the issue. But then he continues on with some more explanation. He says, but should write to them. Now, this is going to sound really weird to us, so I'm going to explain this in just a minute, okay? But this is what he says. He said, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Now, that's kind of weird, isn't it? Now, you might be sitting there going, I get the sexual morality one. That sounds very church-like, but idols, yeah, I don't, none of us are worrying about that. Strangled, so we can't strangle, of course. Like, in blood, we, I don't understand, right? But what does all this mean? Well, before I think, let me, let me finish this passage, then I'm going to come back to this. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. So now they're, they're going to take this, this decision and take it back out to the rest of the churches. They're going to send a delegation. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. So they compose a formal letter. because This is official. This is, this is the truth. They've said, we've, we've looked at what the Scriptures say. We've looked, and that's what they did. They looked at the, what the Scriptures said. They looked at what God had revealed to them and said, this is the truth. It's Jesus, and that's it. And this needs to be known. We can't be doing this other thing. So they compose a letter. Uh, the brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words and settling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden 
than these requirements. Okay, so this, this is actually, it's interesting. The way this is phrased connects to Greek language. Uh, back in these days, if they were going to send out a formal letter, I mean, this is the form that it would take. And so this is a very, what we think of as like a, a very legally minded, specifically written letter to get across a certain point to say this is our official statement on this issue. We don't want to trouble you. We don't want to burden you with anything more than these basic requirements. And where they come back to these requirements? That you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols. So here are these weird things again, right? Uh, things that have been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual morality. If you keep yourselves from these, you do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained at Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So now let's, let's break this decree down for just a second, okay? This decree about the strangled and the blood and the idols and all this... I want you to think about it this way. It's not about menu, because a lot of those things seem to have to do with food, like things that have been strangled and blood and, and food offered to idols. But it's not about menu. It's about venue, right? Where? Let me explain. It's not about the food offered to the idols. It is about the entire pagan temple scene. Each of these items that are mentioned are related to pagan temple worship. Now, I know this is a foreign concept to us, but this is exactly what would happen in pagan temple worship all over the Roman Empire. Animals would be sacrificed to the idol. Many times they were strangled. That's how they would kill the animals. Um, the animals were then eaten. The meat was uh, cooked and you know, eaten and everything else. Quite often, the, uh, the animal, when it was first killed and the blood was being drained, the priests of these different pagan gods thinking Zeus and Hermes and all the, I mean, think of all these Roman and Greek gods, this huge pantheon of gods, right? All these gods. Many times the priests of these different gods, they would drink of the blood and it was to give them life. I mean, we're thinking, man, I would not do that, right? But that's, that's, this was part of the, everything that they did. In a later letter, Paul would write that the meat being sold in a market, if it had been offered to an idol, he said, don't worry about asking questions about where it came from. He said, if it's in the market, just, just, you can take it. It's not, it's not anything. So it clearly has nothing to do with the, the, the meat in and of itself. And Paul makes that very clear. He says, not that the meat, it's just meat. But, but this, this command here, this recommendation to, to avoid these situations is all about this, this whole temple worship scene. There were also, uh, in many temples in this time period, uh, in fact, most pagan temples had uh, pagan uh, temple prostitutes. And part of their worship service was to engage these prostitutes as part of the whole process. Crazy. This is clearly something to avoid, this whole pagan worship scene. But then I think to myself, but why tell them? I mean, why was this necessary to add this in to require? Yeah, it's Jesus alone. You're saved by grace alone. But uh, make sure you avoid these things. Why would they need to tell? I mean, to me and you, that might seem like, well, duh, if there was some weird temple that was strangling animals and drinking the blood and had prostitutes as part of the worship, we would avoid that. I mean, obviously, that's something that wouldn't go along with Christianity. But to understand this even deeper, you have to understand the culture. Everything in their culture was centered around this. In every city, there were temples. 
built. It was part of their economy. We see that in Acts. We're going to see later in Acts, we're going to see uh, uh, as Christianity comes in and Paul's preaching that it, it disrupts the cell of uh, the coppersmiths get upset because they were selling these little idols made out of copper. Um, we also see fortune tellers that when they become Christians and they stop being fortune tellers, what happens? The, the people that were running that business, they're getting upset with Christianity. It's part of their economy, every aspect of their economy. But it was bigger than that. In this time period that we're talking about, if you were running a business and you said, I need my business to thrive, it wasn't just about good business practices. You know what they would do? Well, let's go to the, the God of businesses and sacrifice to him. I, I think that the only way that we can quite, quite grasp this is to think about how this might relate to us. For us, idols is such a foreign concept. We, I mean, we can't, most of us can't fathom having a little idol sitting up that we worship to. I think we all might get, now I'm going to ask you to stretch your minds here just a little bit. I think that you all might get to some degree or another because many of you might, without even realizing it, be trying to appease, and I'm going to put little quotes up here, the gods to get what you want. Sometimes we call it fate, karma. I've met many people that think, man, if I want good to come to me, I've got to give good. If I give good, then good comes. And we start playing this, this hypothetical. Now, a lot of times we bring what we call God into it. Okay, if I pray and I do this and I make sure I do this thing here, I'll get what I want. For them... This idol worship, everything, it even delved into their, their whole society. All of their holidays, what you would call them, were centered around different pagan gods. Everything that they lived and did. I mean, you could not avoid aspects of idol worship in their time period. It's just like how things have infiltrated our culture. Their social life, their feasts, their holidays, their get-togethers, families. Many times they would have idol worship was connected to family gatherings. Politics. The leaders were even considered to be gods, and you would pray. There was a whole cult of emperor worship. It was part of everything that they did. Everything was connected to idol worship. So now let's bring back the dog. You ready for the dog again? I won't make you look at him again. The last thing I said about the dog, I could summarize by this. The dog, I freed him from the chain, but then I bound him into the yard. Was the freeing of the chain and the binding into the yard, was that ultimately, was that not ultimately because for his own good? It was my motivation to keep the dog from good things. No, I knew, I know the nature of the dog. I know so much more than the dog knows, I think. And, and I knew this is what's best for the dog. For that dog to fully enjoy his life to the, the, the maximum capacity, there's got to be some limitations that are brought in for his own safety, for his own enjoyment. We, in this passage, I think what we're seeing is something very similar. We have been freed from the law. You see that in James' pronouncement. We've been freed from the law. But then we are what? We are bound, and I'm going to call it by his grace. See, for these people... When they became Christians, and I think also for you, there's a freeing nature to the gospel. 
So now, I want you to just hone in on this for just a second, okay? There's a free nature to the gospel. I mean, basically, you have to understand that what I say as a preacher that I believe the, the Bible teaches and the, the gospel is all about is this, that people are saved and it has nothing to do with how good they are. You're saved simply because of Christ. You're saved by his good grace. You're saved through faith, just believing it. In Christ alone. Nobody gets to heaven. There's, ultimately, under God's economy, there's not a single one of you in this room that stacks up your good deeds and this person's good deeds and bad deeds and everything else and, and outweighs anybody else. All of us, if we stand before God and are welcome into heaven, it's simply because God says, by my grace, I sent my son on this earth, to this earth to die on the cross to take the penalty of your sin. So all of God's wrath was pulled, pulled, poured out on Christ. And then his righteousness, he says, I'm gonna, I, he lived a perfect life. He didn't just show up one day to die. He lived a full life without ever sinning. And so he makes this substitutionary atonement is what we call it in theological circles. He says, I take your sin, I'm gonna give you righteousness. So when God sees you, because of that. Many people see that and it, it feels very much like the dog that's been let loose of the chain. You're no longer reminded. It's taken off. There's an aspect of freedom. But we see in this passage as well, James saying, but abstain from these things. But I think that what you can see is that just like that dog, no longer do we have that burden to bear. Just like that dog's chain, right? Which, by the way, I had the dog's chain on there for his own benefit too. It wasn't really just to make him feel horrible. But we are bound by his grace. There's a lot of overlap in these two areas, the chain area and the fenced-in area. There's a lot of overlap. There's some similarities that seem like it. There's definitely more freedom, not just in space, but also for his ability. Although my dog doesn't do a whole lot of romping, as you can tell. But he has more freedom to be a dog right in the backyard without that chain dragging him down and tripping over it. He has the ability to move more freely. Of course, not, our, not the dog, but us. We have the ability to hurdle, jump the fence, right? My dog couldn't jump anything if he wanted to. So why, then, does a Christian stay within these boundaries that God lays out for us? Why does a Christian then say, for example, abstain from sexual immorality? Why? Is it because of some law? No. It's because we believe and we trust our creator. And we say, God, the inventor of all of this, knows what's best. And so I stay in the yard, in my Lord's yard. Why? Because I trust him. He made us, he made our bodies. If he says something's not good to do, we trust that's for our own good. Uh, why would a, I'm, I'm going to, I was trying to think of some various examples here. I, I thought of another one. Uh, th this one hasn't been a, a, an issue that I've known very many people have struggled with, but, but why does a Christian choose not to gamble their money away? Is it just because gambling's a sin? Is that, is that what it is? No. We see our money as God's money. Our goal is not to get rich in this life. We've trusted our God to, to give us exactly what we need. 
Why does a Christian stay married even when it's difficult? You know why? Because we believe the inventor of marriage, you guys knew that, right? God invented marriage. That was a great idea, by the way. But this guy that invented marriage, he goes on to say it's a holy thing and there's, there's bigger purposes in marriage than just companionship. So why do we stay in the fence? Because we trust our God. We trust our God that if, if there's something that he said, don't go out here, it's, it's not to be restrictive and prohibitive. But it's because he said, I love you. I invented all this stuff and I know what's best. Why do we as Christians avoid endorsing or engaging in homosexual activity? Is it because we hate people? That's what I get. That's what I hear. No? Our God says that's outside the fence. And I trust our God to know what's best. Why does a Christian go to church regularly or serve in church? Why does a Christian give money in the offering? Is it out of a sense of duty? Now, I'm going to tell you right now, there's a lot of people that go to church and they, they do all these things for the exact opposite reason of what I've been telling you. They do it because it's out of a sense of duty or they do it because they, they think that I can appease God, I can get him to be happy with me, that I can, he can give me what I want. They're, they're, they're work, playing this game of control with God. They think, if I just do this, and they're treating God like an idol or if I just do all the right things, God will give me what I want. And no, for genuine Christians, they've abandoned that because they know that they're saved by faith alone. And so why do they do these things? Why is my wife back there with a bunch of kids teaching them? Is it just because she loves kids? She does love kids. Don't worry, guys. She loves kids. Is it just for that? No. You know why? Because she trusts her God. And whenever God calls her, say, hey, this is a need that I can fulfill. She says, I want to do it because I... I love and I trust my God. I think that there's some connection with that as the same reason why my dog, his favorite place to be isn't beyond the fence. It's right next to Charity. If you've ever been in her house, you will notice this. The dog follows her around everywhere. She sits on the couch, he jumps up on the couch. She walks in the kitchen, he follows her into the kitchen. He just wants to be near her. Why do Christians do what we do? It's not to earn. That's out the window now. We know it is. Why do Christians do what they do? They just love God. They recognize all he's done for us. I want to close this up with these thoughts. You've been freed from the law. Even though the law never really did bring salvation to begin with, all it did was make you more aware of your own sinfulness. Paul talks about that. I think that's so similar to this leash illustration in my head. The dog, when he's on the leash, he's just constantly aware. Don't, you can't go this far. You can't go this, that's, what the law, that's all the law ever does. It makes you more aware of how, how sinful we are. You've been freed from the law. You're freed from thinking that the law brings you salvation. If you're sitting here today and you think to yourself, I gotta do, if I haven't done everything right, then God won't love me, then you are missing the point entirely. That's not how it works. You're freed from that. You're freed from being constantly reminded of your shortcomings. Under the gospel, you're not constantly reminded of your shortcomings. If you're reminding yourself of your shortcomings, it's because you're falling back into law thinking. 
under God's economy, that's not how it works. His grace is free, and it's based on his goodness, not on yours. By the way, aren't you glad of that? Aren't you glad that God, how he treats you, is based on his goodness and not based on your goodness? Aren't you glad of that? I'm glad of that. <laughs> oh my, exactly. I mean, if, if we were treated based on, on our goodness, who of us in here would get anything good from God? Haven't we all fallen short? God treats us based on his goodness and not ours. You're free to enjoy all that God has given you. As much as I look at my dog when I let him out and he's inside the fence and I'm like, I, I, I'll be honest, it's kind of weird. I don't really, the dog doesn't care about me at all. But when I open the door and I let the dog out, I kind of enjoy letting him have the chance to walk around. He's not like constantly tripping on the thing. I, I enjoy like ha- letting him have the freedom of the backyard. I enjoyed finishing it. So the first time I could let him out and I opened the door and I was like, there you go, buddy, Zeus, let's go. And he, you know, you know, and watered my flowers and stuff. I was like, thanks, buddy, appreciate it. I, I kind of enjoyed it. I, I think very much like that is exactly how God, he says, he says I, that I've, I've freed you from the law. And I think that he, I believe, absolutely, he wants you to enjoy all that he gives you within this scope of what he knows is best. You've, ba- you've been bound, and this is why I said you've been bound by his grace. The, the binding things that many people look at as prohibitive or restrictive from Christianity, you have to understand they're only for your good and his glory. What's amazing to me, I'm just going to end on a personal note. Everybody I've ever known, that's, and I'm old enough now I can say this. Everybody I've ever known that's rejoiced in being freed from the law and, and enjoyed being bound by his grace. Everybody I've ever known that's just embraced this. I have to be honest, they're full of joy and contentment, peace that passes all understanding like the scriptures say. People I've known that have just said, I'm embracing all the freedom that God has given me. If he says, go this far enough, I'm going to enjoy all that God has given me. I know that he's restricted, but I don't see those things. I trust my God. And they end up kind of like the dog following the master and just saying, Lord, you've been so good. Your presence. But on a personal, I've seen they're happy, full of joy, peace, contentment. I will say as well, everybody I've ever known that lived free of the law but refused to be bound by the grace. Okay? Yes, I'm free of the law. But have refused to be bound by God's grace. Maybe it's because they've seen it as restrictive or prohibitive. They say, oh, God must not love it. He's keeping good things from me. Everybody that's gone that route, one of two things has happened. Just in my experience, I would say I could... Evidence is from scripture, but I just wanted to share a personal experience at the end. Everybody I've ever known that's gone that route, one of two things has happened. One, their lives have crashed and burned. They're miserable. They're discontent. They're frustrated. They operate their lives like they're trying to appease the gods, and sometimes they call it God. But they operate like they're trying to appease the gods to get what they want. And they say, I just got to figure out and do this, do this, do this. And they're just miserable. 
And their lives, many of them, are a shambles. The other thing I've seen is this. I've seen many that have loved the fact that they're freed from the law, but rejected God's gracious boundaries. And if they ended up, did not end up crashing and burning, they prospered, but their lives were empty. I think you see this so often in the media today. There's so, so many people that you would look at and you think, man, they have it all. How many celebrities have we seen? You think they have it all and they commit suicide. Why? Ever wondered about that? Many people just operate in this conscious state. If I could just get fill in the blank, then I'd be happy. And if you've lived long enough, when you get that thing that you thought would make you happy, does it make you happy? Some of your people who are older in the room, does it really work? I see my older people in the room going, nope. If I could just get this, I'd be happy. Doesn't work. And they live their lives as well, trying to appease the gods to get what they want. They would never have thought about it as idol worship. But that's precisely what it is. Isaiah in the Old Testament talks about our hearts as being, having, having idols in our hearts. He said the idols are not just these, these statues that we set up. We set up these idols in our heart. Things that you set up that you want more than you want God if you set up and you're worshiping idolatry. John Calvin, a theologian, said our hearts are idol factories. We're constantly coming up with new things that we think that will make us happy. That's the thing that we want. I'm sorry, I need to go back. I have to close with this picture. Oh my. I can be honest. That dog is just happy when Charity's home. I, I don't want to stretch the illustration, but man, I just think of pictures exactly. When, when I see him, I, I was going to include some more pictures. My, one of my favorite ones I have, uh, she's not home, and he's sitting on the couch. And he, when she's not home, he will sit on the couch and just sit by the door and stare at the door until she comes back. As soon as she comes in, his life is full. God has opened up our lives to live in his yard, to come into his house, to sit on his couch, to be nourished by him, to be fed by him. God has opened up his yard for us to live in, to enjoy all that he has. I'd like to encourage you that some of you may just need a change of perspective. If you have been going through life thinking to yourself, that God is keeping you from good things. You are dead wrong. God is good. Every good gift, every perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights. God does not keep us from what is really good. He keeps us from what is ultimately bad. That's the God that we have. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as I close today in prayer, Lord, I ask that you would help us all to enjoy the freedom of, of being taken off of the law, Lord, that we can enjoy that freedom knowing that 
your grace does not depend on us any longer. But Lord, I pray that you'd help us to see and understand your grace and how you've bound us by your grace into the best places that we can be. Lord, I know that many of us in this room, probably all of us, have at one time or another wanted to jump the fence or have jumped the fence, thanking God that you're wrong. There's, there's good stuff out there that I'm missing out on. Now, I know many of us in doing so have caused a lot of damage, wrecked our lives, caused hurt, caused pain. I pray that you'd help us to see life the way you've designed it. And I pray, Lord, that as we enter back in by your grace into your yard, I pray that you'd help us to see it for what it really is. Just your grace that binds us in, that keeps us close to you. Father, I just ask that you'd be with those in this room. Lord, for whatever reason, why ever they're, for whatever reason why they're here today, God, I pray that if they have lived their lives looking outside the fence or jumping outside the fence, God, I pray that today would be a day that they would see it differently. God, I pray that you would call to hearts this morning. Call those in this room back close to you that they might live within your grace and your mercy. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you guys are dismissed.